thought I'd encourage you by giving uh, some of Leopold's words on this chapter 11. He says, we do not see how Daniel 11 could be used for a sermon or for sermons. <laughs> uh, I thought you'd enjoy that. Uh, that was one of the first things I ran across when I was doing research on this chapter, and I said, thanks a lot for the encouragement. Uh, but this uh, passage, it's true, really is a little bit tougher. There's a lot of exciting material in this, uh, in these last two chapters, um, and I think it's just great material for teaching. I'm looking forward to doing it, but it doesn't lend itself uh, to neat three-point, you know, sermons uh, because the passage is too unified to break up, and it's far too long to cover in one uh, setting. And so what we're going to be doing over the next weeks, and we'll take a, a break for... Um, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, but what we're going to do is just go through it verse by verse. We're not going to worry whether we finish a pericope, whether we get through a chapter uh, or uh, any particular paragraph, and as we come up with an application in a particular verse, we're going to stop and make that application. We're not going to do the application at the end, and that's not in your outlines. Uh, the outlines there are just sort of historical reference. It gives the names, it gives the dates, so that you're not confused when we're going through but uh, we're just going to sort of take the strategy of cutting off slices of bread, and over the next few weeks, eventually we'll eat the whole loaf, and uh, we'll be done with this chapter. But let's go ahead and let's begin with chapter 10, verse 21, and I want to make two applications uh, from uh, this verse. Uh, the first one relating to how we got our canon, because I know a number of you have asked me over the last three years questions about that. How do we know which books are included and which ones are not included? And I think there's some helpful information there. He says, but I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. Uh, and then he proceeds to do that in chapter 11. He gives to Daniel what is going to be put into the scriptures. But I want you to notice how he says that. Very interesting. He, he says, I will tell you what is, present tense. I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. I think this is just an incredible testimony to the authority of scripture. It is not man who determines what is and is not included in the scripture. Uh, it is not uh, the church that determines that or the church, uh, he's not even saying, okay, the church is going to recognize that. That's true. He doesn't even say Daniel's going to tell you that this is going to be in the scripture. God determines that, and before Daniel had even received these words, he says, this is Scripture. This is already noted by God as being a part of the Scriptures. And I think this is an important verse amongst many to keep in mind uh, during uh, uh, controversies or debates, uh, for example, with the Roman Catholics who say that it was the church that uh, includes or excludes uh, uh, passages from the Scripture. And there are many uh, Protestants even who have forgotten uh, that point. It was a big, big debate uh, at the time of the Reformation. <clears throat> and what I want to do is I want to give you a little bit uh, more ammunition, a little bit more background material on that. We already saw in Daniel 9, verse 24, that that passage indicated that the canon would be closed off, it would be sealed up, it would be finished uh, in the first century A.D. There was a prophecy there, and after that time, nothing more could be added to the Scriptures. Uh, we also looked at chapter 12 and verse 4, uh, where the book of Daniel was closed up. Nothing more was to be added to the book of Daniel in Daniel 12, uh, verse uh, 9. Those all relate to canon, but I want to have you turn with me, if you would, back to Joshua chapter 8. Now, at this point, 
uh, in time, there were only five books in the canon, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And yet, all five books are spoken of as being a part of a book, the book of the law. It is a singular that is used referring to the canon. If you take a look at uh, chapter 8 and verse 31, it says, As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses. Okay, all five books are referred to as being part of a book, the canon that was developing over time. Look down at verse 34. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings according to all that is written in the book of the law. Again, the singular that is used there uh, to refer to the five books that were already in the canon. Now turn over to, uh, to chapter 23, verse 6. There's another reference there. It says, Therefore, be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. Now flip over to chapter 24 and verse 26. And this is the key verse here. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. When he wrote Joshua, the book of Joshua, it was immediately written into, it was included in the canon, in the book of the law. He wrote them right into that book. He didn't have to wait till the Council of Jamnia in 90 A.D. in order for that to be canonized. No, it was canonized the moment that it was given. And I think that's a really important uh, point and distinction uh, to be made because there are many people who think that the canon really was developed by the church. Not so. Many people say, you know, some of Paul's writings were canonized in the second century A.D. That is absolutely false. Why do I say that I know that? Well, that's because Peter speaks of Paul's writings as being Scripture uh, already in first, uh, 2 Peter 3, verses 15 through 16. So that means prior to 70 A.D., there were scriptures that were already recognized as being part of the canon. Uh, Paul refers to the Gospel of Luke as being scripture in 1 Timothy 5, verse 18. Uh, he didn't uh, have to wait till the, the, you know, that the, the church had figured out things down the road. No, it was canonized right off the bat. And uh, there are many Protestants, I think, uh, who make a big mistake on that. That was a debate between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church says, no, it's the church that has the authority over the Scripture. Scripture loses its authority if the church becomes the judge of Scripture. Okay, so this is a very, very important uh, point. Now, if you want more details, this is just to whet your appetite on it, I've got hundreds of different Scriptures that relate to why certain books, even though they were inspired, were excluded from the canon at the time that they were written, why others were included. Got a full paper on that, and there's another paper by Greg Bonson on the canon, and uh, I would like to give you those. If you're interested in studying that out, just let Deb, uh, uh, Deb um, Boulan know, and we'll get you a copy. So the first application is, God gives scriptures right into the canon the moment they are written. You know, it's not left up to haphazard decisions down the road. A second application is not just how we get the Scriptures, but how reliable those Scriptures are. Uh, take a look at chapter 10, verse 21 again. He speaks of what he's giving here as the Scripture of truth. And in verse 2 of chapter 11, again he says, Now I will tell you the truth. 
Uh, this is something that is so important for us to lay hold of, the inerrancy of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture, because it is coming under attack uh, over and over again. And I want to give you a practical key on how you can determine whether a teacher out there really holds to the authority of Scripture. There are a lot of heretics out there who are masquerading as evangelicals, and Christ warned us that this would be true in various ages. He says that some teachers would be so clever in their deception that if it were possible, they would be able to deceive even the elect. Uh, I know, for example, a Baptist minister in town who is the nicest, nicest guy, and uh, he doesn't believe in the Trinity, doesn't believe in the resurrection of Christ, the deity of Christ. He, his uh, view of, the, of salvation is a shambles. And yet I heard a sermon that was delivered by this man that was very orthodox, a wonderful sermon. And when I confronted him about it afterwards, he says, oh, well, it's just a psychological crutch that people need, and I'm here to give it. But the people didn't understand that. They thought he was a, such a nice guy, they followed him. And yet over time, he would be throwing in these different statements that would make people question the scriptures and undermine uh, their trust uh, in the scriptures. And so we can't just automatically tell, you know, by looking at a person, how nice they are and the experiences that they've had, whether they are um, uh, false teachers or true teachers. Christ said, by their fruits, you will know them. In the context of judging who is a false prophet from a good prophet, he says this, by their fruits, you will know them. <clears throat> Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So he's using the analogy of two different trees. One's got rotten fruit and the other's got good fruit. He says, you can tell what kind of a tree it is but what, by what kind of fruit it produces. Just looking at the trees, maybe he's not going to help. And there's many different ways in which you can be fruit inspectors, as it were, so that you're not sucked in, you're not taken in. There's certain ways where you can immediately tell where people's positions line up. I believe that Daniel gives us four in the theological arena and I want to give those to you now, and how you can tell whether these people are like the angel, where they see the scriptures as being the scriptures of truth, or whether they fudge on that. Uh, when we began the series, I mentioned that R.J. Rushton, he said there's four things about Daniel that make it very offensive to liberals. Uh, the first thing that makes it offensive is that this portrays God as a God who cannot be manipulated, uh, a God who is self-sufficient and sovereign. You know, the idea that God has no hands except for mine is liberal to the core, and yet how many evangelicals talk in that frame, uh, frame of reference? Well, Daniel is a, an explosive book that dynamites any such notion out of the water. Uh, you know, if you ask a liberal, does God bring wars and tornadoes and desolations and pillaging and things like that, more times than not, he will say, oh, no, no, that's not God at all. And yet Daniel says it is. God, he affirms that God is involved in those types of things. On the other hand, if you ask uh, a liberal, does God need us, you know, in his plan and his programs, more times than not, the liberal will affirm, absolutely, yes, God needs us. Uh, Daniel denies it. Uh, and so uh, the, the whole area is, is God a kind of God that can be manipulated? Is he dependent upon us? Uh, what kind of a view of God do you have? The second thing that makes the book of Daniel offensive is that it's very upfront about the existence of miracles, okay? Uh, now, liberals don't mind talking about miracles. Um, you know, they will uh, talk about miracles that uh, really aren't miracles. They'll talk about the miracle of birth, the miracle of love, 
and things like that because they like to use biblical language. It makes them look like sheep instead of looking like wolves. But if you really press home a miracle like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had happened to them, you know, in the fiery furnace, and you ask them, do you think that literally happened just the way it said in history? And uh, more often than not, they will say no, that they don't believe that because it violates one of the fundamental principles that man's mind is the measure of all things rather than God's mind. So miracles many times are offensive. The third thing which makes the book of Daniel offensive is its portrayal of providence as covering the tiny, minute details of life. And uh, I'm really looking forward to some of the coming weeks going through, uh, looking through the outline. You're going to be seeing some intricate details that uh, God had to, to bring to pass in order to protect his people, in order to punish others. And... Uh, it just causes you to your heart to well up in praise and adoration to God when you see the just the absolutely remarkable ways in which all of these details came to pass. And so, what is an offense to the liberal is a comfort; it's an encouragement to us. But God's providential control over every detail of a life many times that is offensive. And then finally, the fourth thing that um, makes this book offensive to liberals is that it is so full of predictive prophecy that every moment of history is known to God in every detail. Why? Because he controls all of history. You know what liberals say about the last two chapters of Daniel? Uh, I've got uh, several uh, liberal commentaries. And uh, uh, liberals like Golden Gay and Driver and Montgomery and Went. Um, say that some of the details of chapter 11 are so accurate, so precise, uh, so exact, that this had to have been written after the events occurred. You see what their presupposition there is? That it's really not supernaturally given. It wasn't God who gave this. How could anybody know the future like that? Okay, I know some of you have been to uh, the Crossways Seminar uh, that's been here in Omaha. I went to that. It's a fascinating a seminar put on by H. Uh, N. Went, um, and uh, fascinating survey of the Bible, and yet this guy undermines the authority of Scripture over and over again through that course. And the evangelicals who were there, and I talked with them and questioned them, they didn't have the foggiest notion that, that was happening. Let me just give you an example uh, from uh, their their uh, part of the book on Daniel. Went says, quote, it was written in the second century BC under the guise of having been written about 400 years earlier. Can you see that? He's saying that uh, this author, whoever it was, a pseudo Daniel, uh, pretended to be writing from the sixth century, pretended to be giving prophecies, whereas what he's really doing was that he was giving history, but using a literary convention, you know, uh, to, to speak about the future. And according to Christ, the reason why it's so hard to detect some of these people is that they will affirm the authority of Scripture. Uh, they will pretend to be honoring the Scripture while all the time undermining it with those kinds uh, of statements. And Christ says the reason it's hard to detect them is they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They affirm some of the same experiences you experience. They affirm some of the same doctrines that you, that you believe in but they're undermining the Scripture over and over again. And so those phrases, very, very important. This is the Scripture of truth. It is inerrant. There is no error in here. Uh, in verse 2, he says, Now I will tell you the truth. So here's a test that you can give if you're trying to figure out if a person is a closet liberal or not. And it won't always work, but um, uh, very frequently uh, this will expose them. Ask 
the teacher, if he believes, well, just ask him this, when do you believe that the book of Daniel was written? If he says that the book of Daniel was written in the second century B.C., he is a liberal. I don't care how much he protests to the contrary. He is a liberal. And um, uh, it's just amazing to me how many people uh, just have bought into this hook, line, and sinker. I know two Missouri uh, Synod, uh, Synod Lutheran pastors here in town uh, who speak of themselves in conservative evangelical language, and yet when they went to that seminar, they saw absolutely nothing wrong with affirming that this was a second century A.D., uh, B.C., excuse me, um, uh, writer. And instead of saying that this is, uh, the, the whoever composed this book was a bald-faced liar, which would have been a whole lot more honest, they try to affirm that this is a great book. You know, we can learn uh, from it. This is God's Word. Well, how can it be God's Word uh, the, the way that it's written? I think it, it, they're saying the reason he's writing it from the perspective of prophecy is because to the Maccabees it would have been so encouraging to them to know that God cared about them ahead of time. Well, it wouldn't have been encouraging to me at all. It would have just struck at the very heart of the trustworthiness of Scripture. I want you to look at something. Chapter 10, verse 1, it says... In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel. We're not talking about a literary convention here. He's either lying or this is the truth. It was written in the 6th century. And he's using um, uh, normal language to convey that. Now take a look at chapter 11, verse 1. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I even I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now he's speaking of something that happened three years previous using the past tense, no longer the present tense. Now look at verse 2. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. Okay, now the future tense. He is trying to be as accurate, not as confusing as possible, but as accurate as possible in talking about historical details, whether they are past, present, or future. And I don't think you could have a clearer, more concise rebuke to liberal interpretation of the book of Daniel than you have uh, in those uh, three verses. We believe that Daniel was telling the truth when he said he wrote in the 6th century. We believe Ezekiel was telling the truth when he spoke of Daniel as being a contemporary of his in the 6th century. We believe Christ was telling the truth when he says Daniel prophesied the future, in fact, things that were still future to Christ within a generation to be fulfilled. And uh, no matter how respectful these liberals may sound, no matter how conservative they may want to portray themselves, they are really uh, mocking the Word of God uh, with those statements. I think E.B. Pussy was absolutely right when he said this, the writer, were he not Daniel, must have lied on a most frightful scale, ascribing to God prophecies which were never uttered and miracles which were assumed never to have been wrought. Now again, what is a stumbling block to liberals, to unbelievers, is such a comfort such an encouragement to believers. God knows the future. Things are not out of control. God has this as a part of his plan. Now, as I mentioned, my strategy is going to be going verse by verse, and I've included in your outline, um, uh, verse by verse there as well, some of the, the names and the dates, because especially in coming weeks, when I start throwing these names and dates around, and you're frantically writing down, you're going to get lost probably, so the, the, the thing to orient yourself immediately, hold that thing up, look at the verse, and you'll immediately find which part of history that that lines up with. So far, we've seen three practical applications. 
No man can judge the Scripture. James says, we are not judges of the Scripture. The Scriptures are judges of us. Um, and that includes the determination of textual criticism. Uh, we could deal with that. It includes the determination of canon. Only God can judge. Uh, secondly, Scripture is true and trustworthy in all it says. And thirdly, we can use Daniel as a fruit inspection uh, test of liberals. The fourth application that we see, and really throughout this chapter we see it, is that history is his story. History is really the unraveling of God's plan, his purposes in the events of, uh, of men and nations. And interestingly, we're going to be looking here, God deliberately includes evil empires like Persia and Greece as a part of his plan. Now, why is it important to realize that? The reason it's important to realize that is so we can so easily become discouraged and think our poor world is, is totally out of control when we see the wars and the rumors of wars, when we see terrorism and conspiracies and all kinds of things happening. And yet, some of these fearful things that were to come, you know, in the next 50 to 75 years, he just calmly outlines it in verse 2. He says, Now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. <clears throat> Fourth one will be far richer than them all. Now, who are the three uh, kings that immediately come after the joint reign of Darius and Cyrus? Well, in your outlines there, you see it's Cambyses, Smyrtus, and Darius Histaspes. Uh, verse 2 goes on, and it says, The fourth shall be far richer than them all. Fifty years before Xerxes came on the throne, Daniel knew that this man was going to be the richest of those kings. He knew this guy was going to be going after the Greeks. Uh, he knew, uh, he, he, he uh, knew about his um, building projects. There were a lot of things that Daniel was able to ascribe to this Xerxes. And if you want to just get a little bit of a tiny glimpse of the vast wealth of Xerxes, read the first chapter of Esther. Uh, the Ahasuerus there is just another uh, name for Xerxes, the same person. But I do want to comment briefly, and this is application five, on the riches of Xerxes. <clears throat> because many times people interpret the wealth that we have here in America as a sign of God's blessing on our nation, uh, as a sign that we really <clears throat> are not going to be in any kind of jeopardy. If you think that, you need to read history because it has never happened in the past. Wealth has not been a protection of empires or nations in the past. And I think it's unfortunate. So many times Christians have the perspective that so long as our paycheck is coming in, we don't care the kind of evils that the administration may engage in. Uh, so long as the economy is rolling along just fine right now, we don't care about the corruption and the indebtedness that our Congress is getting us into. Uh, so long as we are wealthy as a nation, we don't complain too, long, uh, too much. But if history is a judge, a nation's wealth many times only blinds that nation to its imminent destruction. See, Xerxes, yes, he was number one amongst the nations, just like America is number one right now, but neither America nor Persia was good in God's sight, and that meant that neither nation was safe in God's sight. Our wealth will not protect us. It will not protect us. Another problem with Xerxes and his empire was that he sought expansion through inflaming the subjects to racial prejudice inflaming the subjects to national prejudices, and it was very effective. Uh, verse 2 goes on to say, By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Now, the Hebrew word for stir up there, a'ir, 
is a, a word that means to be hot or ardent, inflamed. And it's in the hithel stem, which means that he's inciting this, this hotness. He's inciting this inflammatory attitude toward Greece on the part of the nations that were in that empire. Well, here comes our sixth application. We know, of course, that Xerxes did exactly that. He was not only a passionate man himself, but he sought to stir up racial prejudice. He sought to stir up fears in the hearts of the people against Greece and hatred for Greece, and he was very successful in doing that. And I think we need to be ever so much on guard that we do not allow the media, we do not allow the hype maybe that comes from government to sway our passions against our reason, whether it's dealing with nations outside or whether it's dealing with, uh, with uh, racial divisions or other things uh, within. Uh, just as an example, uh, uh, America has uh, been seeking to stir people up against Iraq. I'm no fan of Iraq, but I think you should realize that Iraq, of all of the Arab nations, has given the most protections and the most freedoms to Christians of any nation by far. As I say, I'm no fan of Iraq. I think Iraq uh, has some dangers, but I think we need to think through clearly and not be uh, angered against other nations just because of the things that our government or our media uh, uh, says. Uh, just as an illustration, I've talked to people who lived through Nazi Germany, and they said, even though they were Christians, they said they were so easily sucked into that way of thinking through the, uh, what were those, big parades and things that they had, and through the media and the radio, they began to think evil of others when they really had no reason to think evil of those other people. And we shouldn't be pointing the finger at them. It's easy for us to fall into exactly that trap. If we fall into a time when there is racial riots in Omaha, it would be very easy for us if we begin to be hurt and we see irrational things happening for us to begin attributing racial prejudice kinds of statements to other people as well. And I think this passage here talks about how effective Xerxes' propaganda machine was where he says he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Crowd control, crowd manipulation, uh, peer pressure can be so powerful in swaying us. You know, <clears throat> when you're wanting to stand solid for something the Lord wants you to stand on, and everybody else is passionately against that, and very verbally and passionately against that, boy, it's hard to stand strong for the Lord. So we need to be prepared ahead of time and realize the passions of people can be so easily swayed, and we need to be on guard that we are not. History moves on. Verse 3 says, Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. Uh, most evangelical scholars agree that's referring to Alexander the Great, uh, who, whose kingdom was a greater than Persia. He retaliated against Persia for the incursions that had happened previously under Xerxes. And uh, his dominion, even though it was more extensive, very short-lived. He died, and I think the earlier chapter went into much more detail on Alexander the Great, but he died at the age of uh, 32, I believe it was, and his empire uh, was divided up amongst um, uh, uh, four, four, uh, four of his generals. Uh, verse 4 uh, alludes to that. It says, When he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven but not among his posterity. In other words, his children did not inherit the empire. In fact, um, uh, 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 three of his, his three sons were murdered. 
but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be uprooted even for others besides these. And in exact fulfillment, as we said, his three sons were murdered, four generals divided the kingdom, uh, east, west, north, and south, literally to the four winds. Now next week we're going to be looking at the north and the south and how they are fighting each other and how the focus begins to shift over to Israel and how Israel gets caught in the crossfire. But let me give you a couple of um, uh, more applications from verses 3 through 4, and we'll pick up next week uh, where we left off. Application 7 is that we need not fear the power of world governments. All world governments must come to an end by their very centralization. They eventually disintegrate from within through corruption, or they become susceptible to attack from without. Now, that does not mean they're not powerful or fearful. They all were very powerful and fearful. And I, I'm nervous about what is happening, even in America, turning over so much of America's sovereignty to the United Nations. I was very gratified to see the World Herald writing an editorial exposing some of this. They said, in the past, you know, we scoffed at this idea, thought they were all just John Birch conspiracy things, but he says, it's already happened. Uh, our administration has half handed over already our sovereignty in key areas to the United Nations. Jesse Helms, uh, uh, maybe some of you got his uh, circular letter. There are towns in America where the United Nations is saying, you can do this, you can't do that. One town in Arizona, you, can, you have to cut down your water uh, consumption. This is the United Nations dictating policy within our borders. And so that is a fearful thing that could be on the horizon for us. But here's what's encouraging. They're not omnipotent. Only God is omnipotent. They will fall. They will eventually fall. They may do a lot of damage and take down a lot of people with them in the process, but this passage, I think, hints at why they are, uh, they are susceptible. Number one, I think the very concept of centralization, even though it aggregates more and more power and makes them more fearful, eventually that leads to their downfall. But take a look at the last phrase in verse 3. And this will be our last application here. It says there that Alexander the Great did, quote, according to his will. The kingdoms of this world are inherently unstable because they rule according to man's will instead of according to God's will. They are inherent. Only God's will is stable. Man's will is not stable. That is what makes them inherently <coughs> unstable. And Daniel uh, very boldly declared that in Daniel chapter 4 to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he told Nebuchadnezzar that he needed to cut off his sins. He needed to submit to the rule of God. And he says, perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So many times we Christians are embarrassed by God's law. We don't want to tell politicians and others about the beauty of God's law and how it will bring stability to our nation. David did not have that attitude. He said, I will speak of your testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. Our nation, along with other reformed nations like Scotland and Switzerland, had such a stable government, had such blessing of God because they started off ruling by God's will, not by man's will. Our first president, um, George Washington said, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. He didn't just say it's...
Uh, our nation is filled with covenant breakers and liars. Uh, our, our, our government has overthrown the laws of God. <clears throat> and I think that Ezekiel 5 and verse 6 really applies to us. It says, yet in her wickedness she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. I think that's America. Our nation is following the will of man. Only the will of God is stable. Now that's, that can change around. And in terms of the nations of this world, it's prophesied eventually it will. Micah 4 verse 2 prophesies, Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Governments that rule according to the will of man are inherently unstable. Only God's will is stable. And so the last application that I want to draw this morning is that I want to urge you to pray towards and to work towards uh, our nation submitting itself to the will of God, ruling in the fear of God, implementing the laws of God. And that is what we need for the stability of our nation. Amen.